Get your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verses 8 through 14. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. This is God's holy, inspired, and revealed word. May we listen well, understand it, and obey it by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning we've spent already praising your holy name. Lord, we have rehearsed our doctrine this morning. We have listened and prayed along with our pastor this morning for the world and for ourselves. We have partaken of communion together, your table, to be reminded again of the great cost that our salvation cost. And as we open your word to read it and proclaim it and to preach it, we ask for a special measure of grace this morning to speak truly and rightly of you, of your Son. Help us today, Lord. Help us to hear your words. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been said, and you may have said it yourself, maybe after a long journey, there is no place like home. There is no place like home. We come driving into the driveway after that long trip. We come in, and there's all the familiar furniture. There's the recliner. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) There's the kitchen. There's where all the stuff is. It's home. 
We like being there. Occasionally, I have the opportunity to go to my parents' home. They live now in Oklahoma. And maybe once a year or every other year or so, I get to make it back there. They own 10 acres outside the city limits. It's in the country. They've worked on that property for a long time of cutting back weeds and taming things and taking down trees. And, and now it really is a, almost a park-like setting to look at that, that acreage. When, that, when I'm there, one of my favorite things to do is to get up early. My mom has already got the coffee on, so I make myself a cup of coffee. And I walk out onto the deck by myself, and I stand there and look past these trees, past the pond, to this beautiful field that lies down there. Often there's, there's fog there hovering over the grass. And I stand there, and I look, and I sip my coffee. Usually then my dad will find out I'm out there, and he'll open this little side door and come out, stand next to me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> Sit. I'm just standing here saying, oh, the land, the land. And often he'll have an excuse to say, Let's, what's, what's that down there? Let's go see that. And we'll walk together through the land, just my dad and I. We look today at the beginning of God's plan for mankind, a plan for man to live in his home. We have seen how gloriously and amazingly God has created human life. He created Adam of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. He created man and woman in his image, and now we see that man is not left to just make a way on his own. In our sermon today, we have three elements that are in your notes there. God's provision, God's purpose, and God's prohibition. God here in this passage, in His grand care and benevolence, creates a dwelling place for man. He makes for him a home. And what a place it is. That brings us to our first point, God's provision. God purposefully planted a garden paradise to be Adam's dwelling place, a dwelling place for humanity. As Genesis 2.8 declares, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Stop and think about that for a moment. God planted a garden. This was no accident. This was uh, not the product of some evolution. This is not the combination of time plus chance. God didn't uh, slip and trip and spill some seeds somewhere and they suddenly came up in areas that he didn't want them to come up. No, God planted a garden. God is intimately involved in his creation. God is intimately, personally involved in his creation. History some have said, is his story. History is all about him. This speaks to the doctrine of providence. John Piper says in his massive book on providence, from Genesis to Revelation, 
The providence of God directs the entire course of redemptive history. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Its extents reaches down to the flight of electrons, up to the movements of galaxies, and into the very heart of man. And its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of God through the gladness of redeemed people in a new world. God is intimately involved in His creation. This is His providence. And the Almighty intentionally sowed each seed and nurtured every tree to create a lush garden fit for Adam and his, and his progeny. As Isaiah 51.3 testifies, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. In his grace, God transformed a barren wasteland into a fertile paradise overflowing with every perfect gift. Eden itself in Hebrew means delight. It's the idea of paradise, of delight. And through his sovereign provision, Eden is established. Genesis 2.9 says the garden contained every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I, I imagine there were luscious fruit trees, aromatic citrus groves, towering oaks, pines, and cedars. Eden boasted stunning botanical diversity to delight the senses. God created trees in abundance with their towering branches. G.K. Beale, in his uh, wonderful commentary on this area, he calls Eden an arboreal temple. An arboreal temple. And we'll, we'll see that if you, if you were able to trace from Genesis to Revelation the idea of the garden and temple, you'll see an overlapping all the way through Scripture where Eden is probably the first temple. These trees are there, and, and the Lord tells us in His Word that they were pleasant to the eyes. They're beautiful to behold, which tells us something. There is such a thing as beauty. A tree is ontologically beautiful. A rose is beautiful. There is such a thing as beauty. I heard um, a lecture one time on this matter, and the, and the gentleman sa sa said, look, a rose is beautiful. If you don't know that or believe that, there's nothing wrong with the rose. There's something wrong with you. A rose is beautiful. And what we see in our culture today is the up, upside-down turning of beauty and ugly. To where we see many of our teenagers and people actually looking ugly on purpose. It's an affront to God an affront to God. But these trees are pleasant to the eyes. Reflecting on the beauty of trees in 1913, Joyce Kilmer wrote this poem. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree, a tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast, a tree that looks at God all day and lifts 
her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. I remember when we first came to California looking for a house, we walked into the backyard of, of a house that we were looking at, and I looked down and I, I thought, oh, look, a kid has left something here, left his little ball out here in the backyard. And I reached down and I picked up this little ball that was orange, and I picked it up, and before I got it in my head, I had this whole cognitive dissonance happening, like, what, what is, this is not a ball, it's, an, it's not just an orange ball, it's an orange and I can remember thinking, what in the world is this orange doing here? And then I looked up, and I was standing beneath an orange tree. <laughs> we don't have orange trees that often in Texas where I grew up. And so that was, that was dumbfounding to me. It was amazing to me. And you hold that orange, and you feel the strange texture, the, the dimples around it, and the, the brightness of the color, and, and the smell of the orange and the citrus. And you can peel that orange off and, and take a bite, and it's, it's, is, is it sweet or sour? Yes, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's something delightful. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. An orange. I can remember when we bought our own house that we wanted to plant a, a tree in our backyard, and we planted an apple tree. And uh, it's not there any longer, but it was there for a while. And it gave me great pleasure to see that tree grow and begin to, to produce apples, right? <laughs> not like that exactly, but close to that. And so, and so those apples were there, and, and I can remember going and plucking apples, and Linda actually baked a pie, you know, from the apples in our apple tree. And what joy there was to, to eat from this tree. God provides. God provides. His provision is there for Adam with trees and fruit. But how will the orchards and, and vegetation be provided for themselves? Verses 10 through 14 tells us, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. God provides the garden, and for the garden God provides water, refreshing, flowing water. And there it divided and became four rivers. The first was the Pishon. It flows out of the land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there too, so, so uh, gems and, and minerals. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flows around the land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Like Psalm 1, we're reminded of how the Lord speaks of, of the man who is a godly man, a man who, who dwells and meditates on the, on the Word of God how does he describe him? He describes him like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This, this river flows into the garden and waters it. These mighty rivers uh, flow there, enriching the soil, and God abundantly watered the garden and stocked its earth also with, with gold and gems. As Psalm 104 exalts God in creation, we think that the psalmist, uh, it, it, he's reflecting on creation. He's looking back and he's remembering what has been told him of the creation of the, er, of the earth. And he can't help but burst into song as he 
reflects. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds like ministers, uh, his ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose up. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys that flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. And later he says, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nest. God provides for man. God provides for the garden. God provides for the growth of these trees. With incredible generosity, the Lord demonstrates all this in Eden. He prepares this ideal habitat for those made in his image. Though mankind deserve nothing, God extravagantly provides them a beautiful and amazing paradise, an incredible home in which to live. May we ourselves stop and reflect on how God provided for them and continues to provide for us as well. Number two, that takes us to God's purpose. God's purpose. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He places the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. God put man to dutifully tend the Garden of Eden. He's there to, to work it and to keep it. This work preceded the fall. The work precedes the fall. It was not imposed as a curse, but graciously get, given as a gift. Even in paradise, man was designed to work. Man was designed to work. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says this, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Work is inherently good, bringing satisfaction and fulfillment. And God graciously gave Adam the task of cultifying, uh, cultivating Eden to find joy in his meaningful occupation. I think, again, I've mentioned my, my dad. My dad is now 82 years old, and he's worked his whole life. And even in his, quote-unquote, retirement, he still wants to work. He's had some ongoing back problems, and that's kind of laid him up for a while. But as I was, I was talking to him this week on the phone, he said, he said um, this shot they gave me, you know, gave me is working pretty well, and so I'm, gonna, I'm going to work tomorrow. I'm like, Dad, you don't, you don't have to go to work. He, he's like, I know I don't have to go to work. <laughs> he doesn't have to go to work. He's 82 years old, but, but Bill's going to come by and pick me up. We're going to go down and do some work on this house and uh, you know, talk to my mom later. How's dad doing? He's doing okay. Yep, Bill came by and picked him up and then went and you know, took him to breakfast after he worked, right? And my dad says, I feel better 
when I work. I feel better when I work. And a lot of men are nodding their heads, right? Yes, God has made work as a gracious gift for us to do. This labor required diligence and care. And the way that the Lord tends us, as, as John 15, 2 tells, the Lord himself tends us like, like, like a branch. He says, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Adam, in the same way, was called to tend the garden, to prune it, to tend it, uh, to, to nurture it to greater fruitfulness. This role involved effort and skill and dedication to prune, to take care of, not to just let it, let it go out of control in, in, in wildness. Years ago, we had um, some roses. And um, remember, they were outside our, our back patio. And it was my job to prune the roses. And it was one of my first times, and I went out and and my wife was saying, you know, go out and you know, prune, prune the roses, right? Okay, I'll go prune the roses. And so I went off and I, I just kind of like cut the tops of the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the buds that, that were wilting, right? I just kind of cut those off. Click, 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 you know. And okay, I'm done. I've pruned the roses. And she comes and looks. Hmm. <laughs> That's not the way you prune roses. Really? I, mean, I ne- we hadn't had roses. I didn't grow up with roses, you know. And let me show you. She gets the lopper right? Not this little, these little scissors, <laughs> right? The lopper. And she begins to cut. And I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> and she cuts it all back, way back. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know, you're going to kill the roses, right? No. Yes. You're shaking your head, right? What happened months later? Oh my goodness. It comes back and the roses are bigger. It's fuller. It's more beautiful. It's pruned. It's taken care of, effort, skill, dedication. Adam is placed there to to prune the garden, to be dedicated to garden, to to husband the garden. You've heard this term husbandry, to take care of the land. God blessed mankind to exercise dominion and stewardship over the earth. The privilege of ruling creation was granted to Adam. And his mandate was was not burdensome. It's not just drudgery or... Or, or, or just, just, just a job, but it's active reigning. Theologians will say he was a, as, a, as a benevolent vice regent serving under his sovereign king. The Lord King is God over all, the sovereign king of the universe, and he has chosen man, he's chosen Adam to, to rule and reign under his authority. And what was the first command then given to Adam? The first command, we have to back up a little bit. Genesis 1.28, here's the first command. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It is God's desire that Adam and Eve, our first parents, have children, And their children have children, and their children have children, and more and more until they would multiply and fill the earth. Why? Why does God desire this? He just wants a lot of kids everywhere? What's what's the purpose of this? We back up two verses to verse 26 and 27, and we're reminded that 
It says this, God himself speaks and says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God, in his creation, desired that his image be spread over the entire earth. God wants his glory to be reflected back to him from every area of the globe. When we think of image, we think of, think of a mirror. We go and we look at a mirror and we see our image reflected back to us. That's Kevin right there. That's me, right? And here we have Adam now and Eve before the fall reflecting God's image back to himself and speaking of the glory and the, the amazing sovereignty and beauty of our Lord God. He desires that he will multiply and fill the earth. And so from that, the earth will be filled with the image of God, radiating his glory. As Adam was to fulfill this divine mandate and his progeny expanded, expanded out from Eden then, the garden would have expanded with him. This is all pre-fall stuff we're talking about here. Do you understand? It's not that he's, we're so used to thinking about him being kicked out of the garden. To multiply and fill the earth, in our view, is, is thinking we, he's got to leave the garden. He's got to leave home and go out there. No. As he multiplies, the garden would multiply with him and extend until the Garden of Eden fills the entire globe. The earth would have been a God-glorifying, lush, beautiful paradise providing for Adam and all of his children. So we see God's provision, God's purpose. And now we come to God's prohibition. God provides for us. God gives to us. But always with God's provision comes God's prohibition. Always with God's provision comes God's prohibition. This is your wife. I have provided for you a wife. This is your wife. And the sinful man says, looks in God and says, she's not enough. I'd rather have that one. God says, do not covet another man's wife. Do not covet another man's stuff, another man's car, another, another woman's children. God is providing for you. We just sang about the satisfaction we have in God. Does he satisfy you? Are we content in him? Are we pleased with his provision? He, in his sovereignty and his wisdom, knows that he must let us know that there are prohibitions. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the scripture tells us, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with God's design, provision came this single prohibition. The tree of the knowledge was forbidden to eat from. Chapter 2, verse 16, 17 states this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree is good. Every tree is for you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God gave Adam all that he needed. God gave clear parameters. His grace does not mean no guidance or boundaries. God's grace does not need, mean no guidance or boundaries. The prohibition served Adam's good. As Deuteronomy 6.24 declares of God's laws, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes that we may fear the Lord our God for our good always. God's laws and God's, God's commands are for our good always. Limits protect us, acting as a, as a guardrail to keep us on the right path. And God graciously gave Adam freedom within defined borders. As an educator, I, I, I've, I'm always um, interested to hear this story told where they supposedly said, let's get, of the bound, get, get, get rid of these boundaries for children, right? Let's have these child-centered classrooms. Let's have child-centered playgrounds. And, and these fences are really, really not good for children to have this idea that they had these borders and these, these barriers that we've got these children fenced in. So, so uh, being progressives, they decided this school to have a, uh, a school that had no fences around the playground so the children wouldn't be all fenced in, right? Oh, that's horrible. It's like being in a prison out on the yard. I'll see you on the yard, right? <laughs> so they get rid of the fences. What do the children do? They all played in the very center of the playground, right? The borders gave them a place to know this and no further. There was freedom in discipline. We've said that so many times here recently in our sermons. There's freedom in discipline. Freedom in discipline. Limits protect us. And God here is protecting Adam by telling him, you may eat of all of these trees, but not this one. From Matthew Henry, uh, I looked at his commentary, and there's a long a section there. And, and, um, and to help us and to help me, I, I'm going to summarize in some ways what, what, what Matthew Henry said and, and bring it into the, um, the 20th or 21st century in, 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 in vocabulary. He says this. He says, Up to this point, we have seen God as mankind's powerful creator and generous benefactor. Now he appears, God appears as their ruler and lawgiver. God put Adam in the garden, not to live however he pleased, but under governance. Just as we are not permitted to be idle or do nothing in this world, we are also not allowed to be willful and do whatever we want. That's our culture's view of what freedom is, to do whatever we want. And as believers, we say, no, that's not freedom. It's not freedom to do whatever I want. It's a, to freedom to do what is right, freedom to do what is good, freedom to do what God desires. When God gave man dominion over the creatures, he wanted man to know he was still under the authority of his creator. Man is over the animals. Yes, he has dominion over them, but there's someone who is over man. And that is God. The Lord God commanded Adam, who stood as the public representative of all humanity, or the term we use theologically as he's our federal head. He's our representative. He placed him there to receive the law 
just as he had received a human nature for himself and all of mankind. Therefore, Adam received not just the command of a creator, but of a ruler and master. Do you hear that? That's so, Henry, it's so profound. God is not only creator. He is not just creator. He's not the, he's not the blind watchmaker who starts the world and then, spin, and then goes off and leaves it to run however it's going to run. No, God is creator and ruler and master. How many times have I told this story? Probably 14 times when stopping a little kid in my, in my school in Wilmington one time. Hey, stop running. And the little boy stops and turns around and puts his hands on his little hips and looks up at me and says, you're not my dad. <laughs> right? What is he saying? I, I said, yes, you're right. I'm not your dad, but still stop running. <laughs> I have authority over you. God is not only our creator, but he's our ruler. He is our master. And so God in the creative Adam shows, shows that I've created you, but now listen, you've got to listen to me and do what I tell you to do. Though Adam was very great and good and happy, Matthew Henry says, the Lord God still commanded him. The command did not belittle Adam's greatness, reproach his goodness, or diminish his happiness. Let us acknowledge God's right to rule us and our duty to obey Him. Never allow our own will to contradict or compete with God's holy will. Adam's obedience was tested with the warning of, uh, that disobedience for, would forfeit all happiness. He says this, Remain holy as you are now conforming to your Creator's will, and you will stay happy. This is as God is talking to Adam. Remain holy as you are now, conforming to your Creator's will, and you will stay happy, enjoying your Creator's favor in paradise or a better place. Thus, with perfect and perpetual obedience, Adam was assured eternal paradise for himself and his descendants. Eat everything else. And you will continue to live in paradise, completely provided for, walking with me in the cool of the day, being in perfect harmony with each other, with me, with the environment. But eat of this one tree, and you will die. And you will die. Here Adam is threatened with death for disobedience. Dying you will die conveys a dreadful and certain judgment, just as Eating, you will eat, denotes a free and full grant. Henry says this as well. Thus easy and happy was man in innocence, having all he could wish. How good God was to him. He loaded Adam with favors, gave easy laws, and made a kind covenant. Yet man did not understand his own privilege. Like beasts, he perished without honoring God. God gave Adam a clear prohibition not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And this special command was needed to reveal the Creator's will to man. As 10, uh, Romans 10.17 declares, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Adam required explicit divine words to know what pleased God. Why is that important? It's important because there are some who would say, 
just leave those good little natives alone out there because look at them out there. They're worshiping God. They're doing a great job on their own. They just know from creation how to worship God, how to serve Him, how to honor Him. No, that's not the case. Adam, in his perfection, did not know God's will. Adam, in his perfection, in his unfallen nature, did not understand God's will. How did Adam know God's will? God had to tell him. God had to tell him. That's why we, as on this side of the fall, go into all the world and preach the gospel so people can hear and believe. If man could come to salvation on his own, then the worst thing we could do is to go and preach to the good natives out there somewhere. Let them alone. Let them go to heaven on their own. Let the, let the beautiful, wonderful, pagan savages go to heaven on their own. But that's not the case. Adam himself couldn't know God's will without being told. General revelation displays God's eternal power and divine nature. Romans 1.20 The majesty of creation renders all men without excuse for denying the creator. So, so from general revelation, we know there is a God. We can discern that he is good. But special revelation is needed to understand his righteous requirements. What does he want from me? How do I get to him? As Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God must disclose his specific decrees for men to rightly know his ways. Left to his own wisdom, Adam could not reliably know God's desires. As Proverbs 14, 12 warns, there is a way that seems right to man, but in its end, its way leads to death. Our unaided judgment frequently errs, and we need Scripture's light to illuminate our path, as Psalm 119, 105 declares. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word trains us in righteousness. Therefore, the Lord God graciously gave Adam an unambiguous command not to eat from the forbidden tree. This special revelation instructed Adam in the Creator's good and perfect will. With provision comes prohibition. With provision comes prohibition. We'll find out more about the rest of that story in a few weeks as we see if Adam follows the Lord's instructions. In the beginning, Adam was placed in the pristine garden as a priestly guardian. To work and keep are used as descriptors of the priest of the Old Testament. And really the Garden of Eden is the, the proto-temple. It is the first place where man dwells with God. It is the first place where, where wisdom is found. It is the first place where we, have, where we have an angel guarding. 
We see these same pictures throughout the tabernacle and the temple. And as we move into the, the new temple of the, the bride of Christ, which is also uh, likened to, to growing vines and a building, a temple that grows. And finally, the new garden, the new paradise that will be in the new heavens and new earth. We see this move progress along the way. In the beginning, Adam was placed in this pristine garden as a priestly guardian commanded to be fruitful and multiply and extend Eden's borders, Adam was also charged to keep God's word and abstain from the forbidden tree. But when temptation slithered in, Adam grasped the deadly fruit and fell. Fast forward to the New Testament. Another Adam kneels in another garden. A second Adam kneels in a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays. Matthew tells us he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Though he implored to be released from the cup of suffering, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. Leaving that garden, he moved toward Calvary's tree to bear our curse. The first Adam took what was forbidden and brought death. The second Adam accepted death, though innocent, purchasing life for all who believe. Where the first Adam failed and incurred judgment in the garden, the second overcame and achieved salvation. The first gardener disobeyed unto condemnation, but the second was obedient unto restoration. Because of that second Adam, in that second, ar- in that second garden, accepting the cursed tree on our behalf, we get to go home. We get to go home. No longer strangers and aliens, exiles. We get to go back to the garden as God always intended it to be. To go home, to see our Father, to walk with him in the beauty and the wonder of the garden, all because of the second Adam, his beloved son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that uh, you would help us now to understand that, yes, as we read real history of the creation of the world, and specifically today, the creation of Eden and Adam. Lord, we see in Adam a man like us because he is our father. Lord, how often have you provided for us wonderful, pleasing, satisfying, great things. But in our sin, we have gone against your prohibitions. We've chosen for ourselves in our own knowledge, in our own wisdom, We have not been satisfied and 
content to rest in you and your goodness. Lord, you've called that sin. Lord, may we repent of it. May it be distasteful in our mouths. May we spit it out and look to you, the only satisfaction. Lord, for those who have yet to put their hope and trust in the man that prayed in that second garden, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Lord, may they understand even now that he is their only hope to go home. There's only one door into that home, your son, Jesus Christ. Help us all to stay on the path as believers to walk through that door, to hold us fast, and for those who are unbelievers to come to a clear and perfect understanding of who you say you are. We commit our time down to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.